Amen. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. You need to go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, like Bailey said. Last week we began our study of Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. There'll be three parts to that study. That's a passage that Tim Keller calls explosive. John Stott recognizes it as, quote, the most difficult passage in the epistle to the Galatians. In this passage, Paul reaches back to a classic and foundational Old Testament story. So we spent our time last week seeking to become familiar with that story so that we can understand and feel the force of the argument Paul is making here in Galatians chapter 4. Two bits of application we made last week. First, we want to be people of the book. People who are really of the book, not just in word, not just talking good talk about inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of the scriptures, but really spending our time and energy in the word of God, submitting ourselves to it, being familiar with it, and obeying it. Let's be people of the book, not just in word, but in deed. And secondly, we, talk, we saw how God intervenes in the most hopeless and helpless situations in order to display his glory and his grace. We saw it in the birth of Isaac when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. God intervenes in that hopeless, helpless situation in such a way that his glory, his grace is on display. We've seen it in our own lives if we've been converted, if we have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if we have been raised to walk in new life by his grace. We have seen him intervene in a hopeless and helpless situation that was our lives, and he rescued us, and he redeemed us, and we see him do that in our daily walks with him. Oftentimes we find ourselves like the children of Israel between the Red Sea and the army of Egypt, and God parts the sea. God parts the sea so that we may cross on dry land. He intervenes in hopeless and helpless situations so that his glory and his grace will be on display. Those are the things we talked about by application last week. The bottom line from the narrative, the bottom line from the story, is that Abraham had two sons from two wives. One was the son of the flesh with his slave Hagar. His name was Ishmael. The other was of the promise with his 90-year-old wife, Sarah. And that son's name was Isaac. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, is going to use this story to show the Galatians and the Judaizers who are influencing them that there is a way to be connected to Abraham, even to be a son of Abraham, that does not connect you to the covenant promises that were given to Abraham. And he's going to show that the way to be connected to the covenant promises is not by flesh, not by fleshly heritage or descent, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And like with Isaac, that cannot be produced by our own striving, but it comes by trusting, trusting the God who does the impossible. Well, this week we're going to move on from the narrative. We're going to see Paul's unique application, unique interpretation of this story. He's going to do something with the story from Genesis that is odd and strange, and I want to caution you kind of right up front, we'll get into this more in a minute, that, that you, don't, you and I don't get to do this, 
with stories from the Old Testament. Let's remember that Paul is uniquely inspired by the Spirit as he writes these things. And he's going to treat that story in a way that I would not encourage you uh, to treat stories in the Old Testament. Because there's a danger in it that exists for us that didn't exist for Paul. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I want to read to you uh, Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 to 31. We'll spend most of our time today in verses 24 through 28. We've kind of already dealt with 21, 22, and 23 in familiarizing ourselves with the Old Testament narrative. But let's read the whole passage together so that we see it, and then we'll study it closely. God's Word says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray together. Father, we are glad to be together on this day in your presence to worship you, to sing to you, to hear from you. We admit on a day like this, even a day like this, we are so easily distracted. We are so easily distracted by thoughts of tomorrow and what you have in store for us this week. We are so easily distracted by thoughts of yesterday and the things that went right and the things that went wrong. And we are so easily distracted by our interests and our relationships. And so we pray for your help today. That you would give us laser focus. That we would see you and be absolutely caught up in the glory of your presence. That we would trust what your word says. That better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That we would delight in this moment and cherish this moment. And that we would see you clearly in this moment. That's our heart's desire. But we cannot produce that on our own. And so we pray that you will produce it. That you will reveal yourself to us. And that you will teach us and change us. In Christ's name we pray. Alright, so the first thing uh, that we need to deal with today is the beginning of verse 24. 
And this is a little bit complicated and a little bit technical, and I hope you'll stay with me because it's very important. When Paul says, in New American Standard, translation at least, he says, this is allegorically speaking. This is allegorically speaking. We need to deal with that carefully so that one isn't misled into thinking that Paul saw the story of Abraham, Abraham's wives, Abraham's sons, as something other than literal and historical. We want to be careful that we don't feel at liberty to make such leaps ourselves, turning any and every story in the Bible into an allegory. Hear me clearly. All of the events that we talked about last week actually took place. Real people at a real time in real history. Not a parable, not a myth, not a legend. It's real stuff, historical stuff. And this is so important because ours is an historical faith. And if we lose the historicity of our faith, we will lose the gospel, I believe. Because if we just, if we just go back on all of these stories from ancient history and say, eh, it didn't really happen, it's just a story like the little boy that cried wolf, we will lose the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God became man. And died on a cross for our sins and rose again in victory over sin and death and hell. That really happened. And if that didn't really happen, we should just go home. But it really happened. So Paul isn't saying that the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac is an allegory. He's not saying that it is an allegory. An allegory, if you don't know, is a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral lesson or a political lesson. Maybe the greatest example in in literature that we study in school, perhaps, is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. This this intricate story with all of these well-developed characters that never existed, they all stand for something. They all represent an idea or a person or a place or a concept. Paul is not saying that Abraham is a concept. He's not saying that Abraham is an idea. He's not saying that this is an allegory. In fact, NIV, you will rarely hear hear me say this, but NIV does a better job of translating the idea here in Galatians chapter 4 when it says these things are being taken figuratively. These women represent two covenants. So Paul is not saying that the story of Abraham is an allegory. He's saying it's being treated or taken or used by him as an allegory. And this may seem like splitting hairs to you, but but I'm telling you that's, that's big stuff. That's big stuff. Do not think Paul is saying Abraham didn't exist. It's just a made up story to teach us this lesson. He's saying, no, Abraham really existed. And I'm going to take his real story, his historical story, and I'm going to use it to illustrate the point I'm trying to make to you. All right? John MacArthur says it better than I do when he says this. It is best to identify this literal historical account as simply analogous to and illustrative of the spiritual truth that Paul elucidates with it. Tim Keller says it with with shorter words. He says, he, that is Paul, finds the story to be a good, symbolic illustration of grace and works. And that's the point he's trying to make. He's trying to make the point about the one true gospel being a gospel of grace and faith, not of works and law. 
And so he's going to use that story to illustrate his point. So Paul is going to use this whole scene that we laid out last week to illustrate his point to the Galatians. That whether Abraham is your father isn't the main question. Whether Abraham is your father isn't the main question. The main question is whether you are a child of the promise or a child of the flesh. That's the question he's dealing with with these people. Are you a child of the promise or are you a child of the flesh? Because both of those guys had Abraham as their father. Are you depending on the spirit or yourself for justification? Are you relying on faith or works for your relationship with God? That's the question that Paul is addressing. And he's using this picture of Abraham, his two wives, and his two sons to illustrate this point. He's not saying it's not historical. So let's get that clear from the beginning. Verse 24, he says, this is allegorically speaking. Or, these things are being taken taken figuratively. And he goes on and says, for these two women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So here, Paul gets into the explanation of his allegorical approach to the text. And Tim Keller says this is incendiary. It's explosive what he says here. It is offensive. It is the kind of stuff that will get a guy killed as Paul outlines his logic here. He says essentially that the two women represent two covenants. The old covenant on one hand, the old covenant with its priests, with its sacrifices, with its law, and with its work on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have the new covenant with its one great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? with his superior sacrifice once for all that cleanses our conscience and washes us clean from the inside out. A superior covenant of new covenant of grace and faith. He says these two women represent the old covenant and the new covenant. And notice how he proceeds. He says the two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai. What do we know about Mount Sinai? We know that this is where the law was given to Moses. We know that this was a place of God's presence, but his presence was manifest in fire and fury and the loud trumpet and this terrible glory that people were not to approach. He says, one, proceeding from Mount Sinai, he says, bearing children who are to be slaves. Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. What? Sinai was a place of freedom, was it not? A place of freedom away from Egypt, away from Pharaoh, delivered, redeemed, set free. But what has happened? Because of the hardness of the people's hearts, they were enslaved all over again to a law they would not and could not keep. They found themselves, after receiving the law from the Lord on Mount Sinai, trying to climb it as a ladder that would never get them where they wanted to go. Bearing children who are to be slaves. This is shocking that he's using these language. And it gets more shocking when he says, she is Hagar. He's talking about Sinai. He's talking about the law. And he's talking about the law leading to slavery. And then he says, she is Hagar. Whoa. He is clearly talking about the Jewish people. He's clearly talking about the Judaizers in particular who have had such sway in the believers in Galatia. And rather than label them, as descendants of Sarah and Isaac, which they were physically. 
Rather than label them as descendants of Abraham through Sarah and Isaac, which they were physically, he says, they're from Hagar and Ishmael, spiritually speaking. He says, you, may, you Judaizers and Judaism in general, you may be able to track your physical lineage from Abraham through Sarah and Isaac, but spiritually speaking, you are Ishmael. You are Hagar and Ishmael. And this kind of talk will get a guy killed. To say that to the Jewish leaders, to the Judaizers, to say words like that would absolutely get a guy killed. And then he goes on and he makes it worse in some ways. If that first bit wasn't explosive enough, or in case someone misunderstood the point he was making, he says it all again. In verse 25, he reiterates, Now this Hagar, not Sarah, but Hagar, is Mount Sinai. Again, the place where the law was given and where God met with his people. And all of this corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, the place from which the Judaizers likely came, and no doubt the place to which they constantly appealed. And again, he says, the outcome is slavery. So it's surprising, right? All of this is surprising that he paints the picture of Sinai and the law and Jerusalem as Hagar and not Sarah, as slavery and not freedom. And yet that's exactly what it has proven to be. Practically speaking, that's exactly what it's proven to be. John Piper sums it up this way. He says, you can see Paul's point. Don't follow the false teachers. Don't follow the false teachers. They may show you how to become sons of Abraham, but beware. With them, you will be an Ishmael and not an Isaac, a slave and not an heir. And that's what's happening. These people are following the Judaizers into slavery with Ishmael. And he's saying, don't follow them. But rather follow me, he says, and the one true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, into freedom and inheritance that cannot be found, cannot be found through the law. Tim Keller says it like this. Uh, he kind of he gains some altitude and takes a, a, a high look at it all. He says, Paul is linking several things together. The Sinai covenant of law, the present Jerusalem, Hagar, and all who make the law the means of justification with God, and the main principle of life. Catch that. That's highly significant. All who make the law the means of justification with God and the main principle of life, though racially they, that is the Judaizers, are from Sarah, in their soul and heart they are like the people they despise. Why? Because they are depending on themselves and their work for salvation. Now remember back to the story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Could Abraham and Sarah have a son? No way. Could Abraham and Sarah have a son? No way. They're like super old, and she's never gotten pregnant before. Could they have a son? No way. So what do they do? They make a way for themselves with Hagar, the slave. And what did that produce? Nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. Can Abraham have a son? Sure he can. Not with his 90-year-old wife, but with the young slave in his household he could. He takes matters into his own hands and produces something for himself by the flesh, and nothing but trouble comes from it. Whereas later in the story, God shows up and does what Abraham and Sarah cannot do, and what comes from that? Blessing and covenant and relationship with God and freedom ultimately, right? 
That's what is going on here. He's saying that if you depend on yourselves, that those who make the law the means of justification with God and the main principle of life in their heart and soul are Ishmael's and not Isaac's. And verse 26 starts with the best word, right? But the Jerusalem above is free, he says. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. There could not be a stronger contrast than the contrast between Sarah and Hagar, than the contrast between Ishmael and Isaac, between the slave and the free, between the flesh and the promise, between works and faith. And notice the contrast here right off the bat between the earthly Jerusalem, which would be the center of Judaism, and the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the capital city of the redeemed people of God. Verse 26, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. He says, the Jerusalem below, the Jerusalem uh, that you know, present Jerusalem, it's not free. It's producing slaves. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. We, who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, do not look to the east for our heritage and our home and our native land. We look to the heavens, right? We're not looking to modern Israel and modern Jerusalem longing to be there and be at home. We look to glory, longing to be in the heavenly Jerusalem with our heavenly Father, right? That's where we long to be. In verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54. The ESV study Bible explains this well when it says, As Isaiah prophesied, the exile, which is the context of Isaiah 54, the exile did not spell the end for the people of God. Though it seemed completely hopeless, right? They're away from their native land. Things are going badly for them in exile. Isaiah shows up from the Lord and says, it's not as hopeless as it seems. It goes on and says, God will again work supernaturally to bring about the new birth of children where there are none, even among the Gentiles. So Paul is going to use this prophecy in Isaiah 54, which reaches back into language from Genesis to help us think about the whole scene in Genesis. Through Hagar, Abraham displayed what he could do by his own effort. Through Hagar, producing Ishmael, Abraham displayed what he could do by his own effort. And the result was trouble and slavery and pain, right? But through Sarah, with Isaac, through Sarah, God displayed what only God can do. That is, bring a child into the world by supernatural means. Sarah and Isaac are the demonstration of what only God can do. That he can make a way where there is no way. And that sets up this great statement in verse 28, which is where we'll end today. In verse 28, in light of all this, Paul says, And you... Brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. We are not like Ishmael. We are not a demonstration of human achievement, human ingenuity, or human effort. We are like Isaac. We are like Isaac, children of the promise, a clear demonstration of the miraculous working of God, right? 
We talked about this last week, that God intervenes in the most hopeless and helpless situations in order to display His glory and His grace. And if you've been saved by God's grace, your story is that story. You were dead, and He made you alive. You can't do that yourself. No dead man can make himself live, but God can raise the dead. And if you've been raised, spiritually speaking, if you've been raised to new life, it is because God raised you from the dead, and you didn't do it on your own. We are not like Ishmael. We are not something that we produce on our own. We are like Isaac, something that only God can do. And you know this to be true. If you've experienced God's grace in your life, you know this to be true. You know that only God could rescue you. You know that you brought nothing to the table. There's an old song that says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We don't come to the Lord for salvation bringing part of the payment for our sins. We've got nothing to offer, and he swoops down and rescues us, and we celebrate that, right? John MacArthur sums up this whole section. I'm going to read you a summary from MacArthur, Keller, and Platt. It's great. MacArthur says, The conception of Ishmael represents man's way, the way of the flesh, whereas that of Isaac represents God's way. The way of promise. Hagar and Ishmael represent the covenant of law and works. And Sarah and Isaac represent the covenant of grace and faith. Tim Keller says it like this. His point here is not only that the gospel makes absolutely anyone a child of God, but that the most proud and moral and religiously able are often the ones left out of God's family. The gospel reverses the world's values. That's good news for us. That those who are furthest on the outside can be welcomed in by God's grace. Maybe it's terrifying news for us, though. Maybe we find ourselves feeling more like the Judaizers. And Paul says, Ishmael and not Isaac. David Platt says it like this, We do not become children of God by the law, by the old covenant, but by the promise of God, by the new covenant. To put it another way, we are not saved by obedience to the law, but by faith in the promise of God. So the question for application today is this. Are you a child of the promise or a child of the flesh? Are you Isaac or Ishmael? And part of how we wrestle with that is we consider upon what we are relying for our justification. Part part of how I know Not all of how I know, but a big part of how I know if I am an Ishmael or an Isaac is I consider upon what am I relying for my justification? Upon what am I I depending for my relationship with God? If you are depending upon yourself, your righteousness, your works, your goodness, you are Ishmael. You are Ishmael and not Isaac, and you will not receive the covenant blessings. But if you are depending upon God, His work, His promise, if you are resting your whole weight on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you are Isaac. You are Isaac. So I want you to consider upon what are you relying for your right standing before God your relationship with the one true God. And maybe the most telling thing is how you tell the story of your salvation, of your conversion. 
if you talk through your pre-conversion experience about your sinfulness and your lostness and your depravity, and then you get to but, right, because the story's going to change, if your story goes, but I, you're probably Ishmael. If the change that has been made in you is something you did, you're probably Ishmael. And the way you tell your story may reveal what you really think in your heart. I was lost. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But I came to Jesus. But I, X, Y, or Z. That's not the way your story goes. In fact, biblically, the story goes, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made me alive. I didn't do anything. He did everything. That's what it sounds like to be Isaac. So think that through. Maybe today is the day you say, I got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. That's the best place to be. To come to the absolute end of yourself and have to rest your whole weight on Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that today. Trust in Jesus and depend on him. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to rightly consider this question of what kind of child we are. Whether we are a child of the promise like Isaac, or a child of the flesh like Ishmael. Help us to examine ourselves in light of the truth, to see upon what we are relying for our right standing and our relationship with you. Father, if if we are depending on our works and our righteousness and our effort at keeping the law, I pray that you show us that today by your grace. Show us that we are trying to climb a ladder that will not get us where we want to go. Break us of our self-righteousness and our self-dependence and our self-sufficiency. Break us of that. Destroy all of that in us. Rescue us by your grace. Give us faith to believe. Give us repentance to turn. God, if... If in answering this question, it is clear that we are children of the promise who are relying on your grace and your mercy and your work in the cross of Christ, we pray that you help us to worship in light of the great gift we've been given, to sing your praises for what you have done for us in Christ that we could not do for ourselves. And help us to live every moment in response to this great gift. In Christ's name we pray.